It's a blessing to have these staff men on with us here at this church and very capable uh, preachers, young preachers that they are. Tonight, Brother Corbett will be preaching to us, and so let's have prayer, and then they, he will come after a song. Father, thank you for this time. Bless our dear brother, the one that you have sent to us. I pray that tonight, as so many times has happened, that you will speak to our hearts. May we yield. May we not fight with you. May we not resist you. If you said it's got to be true, and so therefore help us to yield to that. Work in the hearts of the people. Thank you so much for your presence in the Anchor Baptist Church. We love you and ask for your help tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Arms stretched open wide, barely hanging. On to life, left to suffer all alone. You came for all mankind to bridge the great divide, somehow ended up alone because of all the blood. Tears you shed. I will never know that kind of loneliness. Your spirit never leaves me, even when I'm hurting. I don't have to bear that burden on my own. Carried all the pain and buried all the shame when you made that rugged tree your righteous throne. Because of you, I'll never walk alone. You came. What it's like to walk these roads. My problems don't compare to that crown you had to wear. Still, you take them as your own. Because of all the blood. Tears you shed. I will never know that kind of loneliness. Your spirit never leaves me, even when I'm hurting. I don't have to bear that burden on my own.
please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. You will go and be seated if you open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter number 8. While you're flipping there, I'd like to uh, talk to you about a brief history of the finger roll. In 1686, a professor in Italy began to realize and put together that each fingerprint is not just random smudges, it's actually distinct patterns and things like that. Fast forward about 150 years later, 1823, another professor somewhere in Europe began to take that previous professor's findings and put them together and actually put in the nine common uh, patterns that there are fingerprints. Closer to the end of the 1800s, uh, it's been, now it's become a common form of identification. And I believe it was in 1890 or 1891 uh, was the first time that a finger, or the first recorded time that a fingerprint was used to solve a crime, used to solve a murder. I believe that was in Chile, I believe it was. And that was the first time a fingerprint was used to help solve a murder, used to solve a crime. And within 20 years, almost every single uh, police force in the world had begun using, that had the ability to, began using uh, uh, technology and ways to store fingerprints, so therefore they could use that for their investigations when it came to crimes and things like that. Uh, so this is a still pretty new thing, especially the grand scheme of things, of using fingerprints for investigative purposes. But we should be in Exodus, chapter number 8. I'm going to read one verse, and then we're going to continue on with that. Exodus, chapter number 8, verse number 19. Exodus chapter number 8 and verse number 19. The Bible says, Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Now, we were just talking about fingerprints. Now, when I think of... I, you know, I think most people, when they just think of the word fingerprints or think of fingerprints, you probably think of, you know, crime shows, uh, forensic files, you know, things like that, you know, solving crime, get the murderer, uh, all those things like that. Because fingerprints are an evidence that someone was there. Your, your fingerprint cannot be there unless your finger was there. Now, unless your finger is not with your body, that's a different problem, okay? But th there has that's an evidence that you were there, because your fingerprint is only yours. Not one fingerprint is the same. So it's an evidence that you were there, and that's why detectives and investigators can use that information. That's why it's been so valuable. Investigators throughout ancient times, um, they, they could have used that, but once again, they did not understand it. The fingerprints were still there. It's not like we discovered fingerprints and we have fingerprints. People have always had fingerprints. But until they could understand what those fingerprints were useful for, that was only when they had value to them. Fingerprints were all over every crime scene, all of history, until fingerprints were found out, then they started wearing gloves, okay? Uh, but they would always have fingerprints. So anyone investigating crimes or things like that, even to the ancient times, could have used fingerprints if they knew what they were looking at, if they understood the value of what was before them. Now, my count of the Bible, this one phrase, the finger of God, to my count, only occurs four times in the Bible, that singular phrase, the finger of God, which I take as something as in the finger of God being something that you could see for yourself is a very rare occurrence, just as it's pretty rare for an investigator or a detective to actually see a crime committed. Almost every single time an investigator or detective investigates a crime, they're investigating something they did not see. All they have is the information that was left behind. So very rarely will we actually see the physical finger of God come down and do something in front of you. But, just like the detective, there's always going to be fingerprints all around. So the challenge, the question that we're posing to ourselves this evening, now you have to be very introspective tonight. You have to face the man in the mirror because the question posed to us, posed to myself, posed to you will be, why do we not see the fingerprints of God around us, but even more damning on us? 
see, in Matthew chapter number 10, verses 29 through 31, Jesus Christ is trying to teach them. He's trying to tell them, look, God is, is very loving. He's very caring. He even knows when a sparrow falls from the tree. And a couple of verses later, he says, he has the very hairs of your head numbered. So you cannot tell me the lack of the fingerprints of God or the lack of seeing the fingerprints of God is that God is not moving because that's a lie. God is always moving. The fingerprints of God are everywhere. So the question has to be begged to ask, why? we not see them? Why are they not evident? Why are they not all over the place to our eyes? Well, I think the problem is, is just as in the ancient crime fighters probably had, the fingerprints were always there. They either didn't know how to find them or they didn't know the value of them. And how sad. For those of us that are saved and living the Christian life, to not have the spiritual acuteness to be able to see the evidences of the moving of the finger of God. You see, it, it seems like it's an eye problem. It seems like maybe like uh, Sherlock Holmes has his magnifying glass. Maybe we need to clean our magnifying glass. But you see, those are only symptoms of the problem. It seems like I have a problem with my eyes. It seems like I have a problem with the processing part of my brain to be able to understand what I'm seeing. But those are just symptoms of the true problem. The true problem is a problem of the heart. And what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at some of the issues of the heart that have blinded people to either the finger of God or the fingerprints of God and have that evil made so they cannot see them or that they cannot understand what the fingerprint of God is trying to teach and trying to tell them and trying to do in their lives. So let us look through our Bibles this evening about the condition of the heart and where has the fingerprint of God gone? Why is the fingerprint of God not evident in my life? in your life, in all of our lives, around us, on us. So we'll start in Exodus chapter number 8. We'll read a couple verses back, Exodus 8, verse number 16. And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So obviously this is one of the plagues that God is bringing on Egypt because Pharaoh and the Egyptians are not listening to God. They are not following what God wants them to do. And so God is bringing uh, uh, plagues on them to judge them for disobeying the, God, the Lord's command. And up until this point, every one of the plagues, Pharaoh's magicians have been able to either do their own form, or at least do a, 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 a farce of it. This is the first one we see in uh, verse number 17, and they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with the rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it, came, uh, and it became lice in man, and in beasts, and all the dust, and lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse number 18, and the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth life, lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. And this is when the, the magician said, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. You see, up until this point, Pharaoh, this could have been uh, just some magic trick, just something that, that Moses and Aaron were doing. But this, this is the real deal. Amen. So how was it that Pharaoh being told by his best, his brightest, his most educated, his most intelligent men in his entire kingdom, they're telling him, Pharaoh, your highness, this, this is the finger of God. Up until this point, we could play along, we could keep up, but no more. This is the finger of God. So what blinded Pharaoh that he could not see? This is the finger of God. It says it right there in verse 19. This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You see, this is one of the biggest problems that we have in the world today. It is the hardened heart. The heart that has been turned to stone. See, this was Pharaoh's problem. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He was not going to see what he did not want to see. See, Pharaoh, when, if you remember in your Bible reading, when Moses first came to Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron, and they said, Thus saith the Lord, Pharaoh said, 
Who is this God that I should obey him? You see, Pharaoh didn't want to admit, so he hardened his heart to the truth that was right in front of him, that was smacking him in the face, that was plaguing his people and his own life. He was not willing to admit the truth that was right in front of him. This is how our world is today. You see, it used to be in our history when things would happen, our first instinct would be God is moving. And natural disasters would be something is wrong. God has allowed this to happen. But now uh, we have our own magicians. Uh, sorry, I mean, we all have our own scientists, our own philosophers that we listen to, that Pharaoh would go to. We have our own ones that we like to go to that have taken the place of God again. See, that's what the magicians were to Pharaoh. They were an excuse not to listen to God. They were something that he could explain away what God was doing, and that's what we have done with science. Let me give you a quick rundown of why you need to be wary of man's wisdom and man's science. Science is the pursuit of knowledge. Science changes every day. Uh, Scientific law, okay, the law of gravity. Scientific law is... This is a definition of a scientific law, layman's terms. For what we know, this is true. Key word, for what we know. Because if we find out something new tomorrow, this may not be true. That's a scientific law. You see, scientists and doctors and philosophers are going to try and woo you today to believe that science is absolute. No, science is just a new way for man to worship themselves. If you know about the French Revolution, this is how bad the French Revolution got. They actually got to a point during the French Revolution where they built a huge sculpture and it was called, and they worshipped at it, and it was the cult of reason. They were literally worshipping human reason. So you don't hear that today in actual history, but that's actually what they were doing. They actually were worshipping human reasoning. Because one of the big things of the French Revolution, especially after the reign of terror, was that they despised having God as their overlord. At least that's how they looked at it. See, that's what science has become us to, us, to us today. It's an excuse of how we don't have to listen to God, how we don't have to follow what God says, because I have a way that I, I, I can explain it away. But the problem is, Science can change from day to day. Oh, and and the other problem with science is your outlook when you start a research will greatly determine your outcome. Because there's there's this thing saying, oh, there's over 10,000 scientists that believe in global warming. Well, problem is all 10,000 scientists already believed in global warming before they even started doing the research. Same thing how you can have an evolutionist and a creationist look at the same bit of evidence and they both are 100% sure it proves their side because your previous outlook determines what you're going to end up with. So that means your previous outlook needs to be something that cannot change. Otherwise, you'll always be changing. So if your basis is man's reasoning, then you have to harden your heart because... You have to have something that will not change. So you get a farce of the Bible. You see, we're supposed to stand on the solid rock. So if you're not standing on the solid rock, that means you have to get a substitute, a cheap substitute, which is hardening your heart and forcing yourself to believe something that doesn't make sense. You see, the finger of God was right before Pharaoh, and he just didn't believe it. just couldn't believe it. He couldn't bring himself to the truth of the matter because he didn't want to. See, that's a problem you have to be wary of with man's wisdom. Colossians 2.8 says, beware, lest any man spoil you, make you become rotten through philosophy, vain deceit, after traditions of men, and after the rudiments of the world, not after Christ. There's the crux. If it's not after Christ, it's not worth having. Because it's always going to change. I mean, you just look at evolution. From the time it became real popular under Charles Darwin, it's not even the same thing. It's not even close. It went from several, several thousands of years old, tens of thousands of years old, to uh, every year they're adding more time on. Every year. 
<coughs> evolution is literally a fairy tale. Every fairy tale begins in a land far, far away a long time ago. Evolution is in a place far, far away billions and billions of years ago. Nothing exploded. Okay? That's evolution. Seriously, that's what they say. And they say it with all sincerity of the world. Nothing exploded. Okay. And these are the most renowned, educated individuals. Just like the magicians. But we become so hardened in our ways that even though nothing exploded, I'm sorry. Because I've hardened my heart. It doesn't have to make sense. I've chosen what I'm going to be. That's what Pharaoh was. It didn't... It, Pharaoh had his heart hardened. He hardened his heart. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He could not. He was blinded to the very truth that was in front of him. Day after day after day, and he was blinded to it because he had hardened his heart. See, when we try to rationalize God with man's reasoning and logic, and not with God's reasoning and his logic, we are hardening our hearts with God. You may not even understand it, Christian, saved individual, but if you're trying to rationalize an almighty, supreme, infinite being with finite knowledge and finite understanding, you are hardening your heart and trying to make it something that you can understand. I'm sorry, you'll never understand God, and if you do, then that either means you're God or you have a very weak and pathetic God because he's just as strong as you are. Because if you can understand God, and he's as strong as you are. He's as smart as you are. Uh, that's not good. <laughs> so how do I know if I'm using God's reasoning and logic? Well, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Amen. By taking heed thereto. So as long as it lines up with the scriptures, then I know it's God's reasoning and God's logic. And so therefore, I know I'm on the right path. So here's the problem with a Christian hardening their heart. If you, Christian, saved individual, if you are unable to see the fingerprints of God around your life and in your life, then pray tell, how is the lost world going to see the fingerprints of God? How is your influence going to be over them? If you can't even see your own God, if you can't see the movings of your own God, your own loving Father, what sort of an influence are you going to have on them? <laughs> you have hardened your heart, even if you don't realize it. You've allowed it to be on cold and frozen because you're not seeing the fingerprints of God. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin, lingering in the heart, hardens it. It's just, it's, that's the natural occurrence of sin. Sin that festers will harden. That's why the Bible says in the book of Psalms, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Because I'm praying from a hardened heart. You see, because when we have that iniquity in our hearts, we get to the place where we don't even really pray anymore because we already know what's going to happen. What's the point of praying if I know God's not going to yeah. answer? Yeah. <coughs> we become hardened of heart. You see, this was Naomi's problem. Naomi, when she came back to, the, to, 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 the, to Bethlehem, to Israel, she told everyone, call me no more Naomi. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. That's what Mara means. It means bitter. She says, God has made me bitter. No, Naomi. You've made yourself bitter. You went off in sin because you disobeyed God's command of staying away from the heathen. And you went out there, and you didn't get right, and you didn't get right, and so your heart hardened, 
each day. Why can't I see the fingerprints? What's your heart condition? Have you hardened your heart? Let's go to Daniel chapter 5. We have the heart of Pharaoh, the hardened heart of Pharaoh. Daniel chapter 5. What's our next heart condition that will blind our eyes? or cloud our understanding of the fingerprints of God. Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. We'll read a few verses, then we'll skip forward. Daniel chapter 5, verse number 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Verse number 2. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar <coughs> had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. So he's going to have a big old party. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes and his wives and the concubines and drank them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and of brass and of iron and of wood and of stone. They're having themselves a good old time. Then verse 5. In the same hour came four fingers man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote once against the other so he had true fear like most people will never experience this fear in their life but it's literally that cartoon level fear where their knees are knocking together that's how afraid he was. He lost control over his body. Verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof, shall be clothed in scarlet, chain of gold about his neck, and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. <coughs> then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled. And his countenance changed in him, and his lords were astonished. Let's skip down to verse 17. Long story short, the queen comes in. She tells him, hey, there's a guy named Daniel. Helped your father out a lot. Why don't you call him? So he did. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said, Behold, before, before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself, not one another, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto thee, O king, unto the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave all people, nations, language, trembled and feared before him, whom he would slew and whom he would kept alive, and whom he would set up, and whom he would put down. Basically saying he was the most powerful man in the world at the time. Everyone who we went before trembled before him. But when his heart was lifted up, his mind hardened to his pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Let's skip down to verse 22. And thou... His son, O Belshazzar, has not humbled thine heart. And there's the key. Though thou knewest all this. First, we have the problem of a hardened heart of Pharaoh. But what about the prideful heart of Belshazzar? Belshazzar watched his father prideful and become a beast for seven years it wasn't like a weekend deal years and then he follows in his footsteps now it goes on to say in that very same chapter that very night he was killed and the Medes and the Persians would then take over no more Babylonian Empire 
that our understanding has been clouded because you are filled with pride. Like Nebuchadnezzar, like Belshazzar. You have believed your own press. You have you're blind to the movements of God's hand, and now that God's fingerprints are around you, you can't understand what it's trying to say. You see, Belshazzar could see the hand, he could see the writing, but he had no idea what it meant. If there was anyone that should have a fear of God, it should be Belshazzar. His dad made the statue, had the whole deal with the fiery furnace, and uh, he was the one that said, hey, there's a fourth one in there, and that one looks like the son of God. And then he got right with the Lord, and he stopped his ways, and then he got prideful again, and then God humbled him down, and then he was brought back to his power. But Belshazzar just wanted to do his own thing. He really thought he was all that. There was somebody else, another king, who began to believe his own press. The first king of Israel, King Saul. In 1 Samuel 13, we see of his first incurrence of his major disobedience of God. Samuel told Saul, go over here. Seven days I'll be there. Uh, I'll perform a sacrifice and all will be good. Samuel was a little bit late. <coughs> and immediately when Samuel was late, Saul started taking things into his own hands. And when Samuel got there, the first thing he said to him, he says, Thou hast done foolishly. And then later on in 1 Samuel 15, he does something very similar. He disobeys God. God tells him, Saul, you're going to go over here, kill all the Amalekites, every single one of them, man, woman, child, even all of the animals and the king. And he killed the men, the, most of the men, most of the women, most of the children, and uh, we keep the, feet, the, the sheep. We, we can use them as a sacrifice. And, and, and we, want a, we want a parade that we, we beat the king of the Amalekites, so we'll keep him alive. We want to show everyone how strong God is. See, it doesn't matter what your rationalization is. Disobedience is still disobedience. And then when Samuel came along and he started talking to Saul and said, have you done everything you're supposed to, Saul? And Saul said, I have. Blessed be God, I have fulfilled the command of the Lord. And the first thing Samuel said then, I don't know if you left your ringtone on or something, but I'm hearing sheep. So, and then he went on to say, in verse 17, when thou wast little in thine own sight. You see, Saul could not understand that God was trying to grow him. Why was Samuel late? Well, Saul, I want to see if you can trust me. You see, because when you were little, Saul, there was no problem. But now that you've been king for a few years, I want to see if you're still willing to grow. If you're still willing to take a step of faith, Saul, and you're not. Because you've been blinded with your pride. You, You could have seen that I was trying to work for you, Saul. You could have seen that I was trying to grow you, Saul. But you're so prideful that you couldn't see it. You couldn't understand what I was trying to do, that I was trying to train you, that I was trying to bolster your strength, Saul. Samuel told him, he says, you could have had the lineage. The kingdom of Israel could have been yours and your family. No more. Because God has found him a man after his own heart. And he says, that's the one. chose to allow Jesus Christ to be the lineage of. All because Saul could not control himself. Because he allowed his pride to blind his spiritual eyes. To cloud his spiritual understanding. See, Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 11, 2 says, When pride cometh, then cometh shame. How's your heart looking? 
fingerprints of God are all around us. God has not stopped moving. The finger of God is still evident, still moving, it's still working, but we have become blinded to it. We're like modern day investigators if we're surrounded by a crime scene and fingerprints are everywhere and say, I don't have any evidence, I don't know. That's what we've become. See, it's one thing to go to the ancients and say, oh, okay, well, they just didn't know what they had. We know what we have. How, how, how unbelievable would it be to have a, a, a detective, an investigator, have a crime scene with all this evidence, all these fingerprints, and say, I don't know, I don't have anything. He would say, that guy needs to get fired. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's an idiot. You see, we claim the name of our lovely Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but we can't see what he's doing. We're too ignorant, too blinded by our own hardness of heart and prideful heart to see what he's doing. You see, here's something you need to understand. Your spiritual blindness does not only affect you. It will affect those around you. Exodus chapter 9, verse 34. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. I'm pretty sure that includes those magicians that just a chapter before were saying, this is the finger of God. You see, that's the influence that we have. So if we can't see the finger of God, if we can't see the evidence, the fingerprints of God in our lives and around our lives, then no one else will. No one else has a chance. So what's your heart condition? Hard? Hard heart of Pharaoh? The prideful heart of Belshazzar? What's wrong with your heart? It's high time we stop making excuses and we become very, very real with our prideful and hard-hearted condition. See, the soft heart, just like Jeremiah talked about, I went down to the potter's house. See, God is looking for the soft and tender heart. I can work with that. Because if it's a hard heart, Hopefully, I can salvage it. Hopefully, you can. How's your heart looking? Let's go to John chapter number 8. Our third condition of the heart. The hard heart of Pharaoh, the prideful heart of Belshazzar. John chapter number 8, verse number 1. John chapter number 8, our next heart condition. John chapter 8, verse number 1, the Bible says, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that she should be stoned. Sayest thou. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, cast the first stone. And he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, the woman standing in the midst. I wonder if the scribes and Pharisees weren't so oblivious to what Jesus was doing, if they could have read what he was writing, and before embarrassing themselves, they could have said, you know, I don't know what she means. 
You see, this is the hypocritical heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. Another passage in Luke chapter number 6, Jesus Christ is trying to teach about hypocrisy. It's about the beam and the moat. The beam is a huge piece of wood. The moat is the tiniest, tiniest little piece of uh, a splinter. And he says, we're going around with this big beam sticking out of our eye. And we're saying, hey, you got a, you got a little sliver in your eye. He said, hypocrite, take care of you first so then you can help others. Stop being so worried about everybody else. Amen. You see, because if I'm so worried about what everyone else is doing, about their problems and what they're doing wrong, I'm totally oblivious that God's even trying to give me a message. Because God's writing down here trying to give me a message in the dirt saying, hey, stop, you're, you're an idiot, okay? He's trying to tell us something, but we're too worried. Oh, what are you doing? What are you doing that's wrong? We have the hypocritical heart of the Pharisees when Jesus Christ is trying to tell us a message. He's writing us a message with his finger, but I'm blinded by my hypocrisy. I'm just oblivious that he's even there. That he's trying to give me a message. We don't have that introspective heart to look in. We're so blinded. We're spiritually blinded. Our spiritual understanding is clouded by our own hypocritical thoughts. We're too busy looking at everyone else to understand, to even look at the Father. He's trying to give us a message. He's trying to tell us something. He's trying to help us grow. He's trying to help us with our own problems, but we're too busy. Look at everybody else. What's your problem? Because if I can see your problem, I'll feel better about myself. And by our actions, we cause reproach to Christ. Because of our constant condemnation of everybody else, of all the other Christians and all the other churches, and what they're doing wrong, what they're doing wrong, why don't you worry about yourself? You'll be much more of a use to Christ. By caring about your problems, as pastor is preaching on this morning, take care of your problems. Take care of your things that are not seen. Stop worrying about everybody else's problems. Start worrying about your inner problems. And maybe you'll begin seeing the finger of God again. You'll start seeing the fingerprints of the writing of God. You know, I, I, I hope that the first two problems, the hardness of heart, the prideful of heart, wouldn't be so paramount in our churches. They're definitely paramount in the world, and yes, we definitely have them in our churches, in our own church, in our own families, in our own households. But I think this one and the next one are much more the Christian's problems. It's just so hypocritical. We become the Pharisees, the do-gooders. If you're not doing it the perfect way that I'm doing it, well, then you're just the scum of the who are you? <laughs> I'm sorry. Who are you? I'm sorry. I didn't realize the second coming I come and you're Jesus Christ. I didn't realize. Sorry. It didn't? Oh, okay. Thanks. I wonder what God thinks when he looks at us in our hypocritical attitudes. I'm pretty sure he despises it. I'm pretty sure it makes him sick. I, I did all this for you. And you're pointing fingers at everybody else. I'm trying to give you a message. I'm trying to get you closer to me. I'm trying to help you. But you're too busy pointing the finger at everybody else. The hypocritical heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. We become oblivious to God's finger, to the fingerprints he's putting on our life. He's trying to show us. He's trying to leave us a message saying, hey, I have something I want you to work on. But I'm, oh, I, 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 they, they, oh my, oh my, they, they need some help. I'm going to, you know. If you sit here this evening and you think you have no problem, you're the person that doctor says you have cancer. 
and you say, I don't think I have cancer. Sound good? He doesn't know what he's talking about. He has the x-ray right there. There's your cancer. I don't feel it. I feel okay. I'm fine. You become deadened. But you see that guy down the street, doctor, I think he needs your help. He's sick. I'm okay. That guy, you need to check him out. There's something wrong with him. He needs your help. I'm okay. He, he, he needs your help. See, I, I despise it when I sin and I make the Holy Spirit convict me of what I've done wrong. My desire when I sin, because I'm going to, as long as I'm living, as long as I'm breathing, you're going to sin. You're going to do wrong. But my desire is if I fall, if I do something wrong, I want to make it right before Amen. God has to Amen. prick my heart and say, I'm talking to you. The God that loves me so much, as we talked about last time, Luke, you love me just as much as you love Jesus Christ, that I make him convict me of what I've done wrong. I'm so blinded my, by my hypocrisy of looking at what everyone else is doing that I can't even see my own heart. No one's heart is totally fine. Everyone has problems with your heart. You see, this is the truth. As I get closer to God, the more I need to change. That seems very oxymoronish. Well, if I'm getting better, then I should have less to change because I'm getting better. But you see, the Apostle Paul understood it when he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. What he was trying to say is, I'm not, Paul was not some heathen pagan man. He was a man that every day he was getting close to God, and every day he understood how wicked he truly was. And he says, the closer I get, the more I see. I've got a long way to go. See, because Paul didn't care what everyone else around him was doing. He was worried about, what am I doing? I'm getting closer to God. The closer I get, the worse I realize that I am. The more uh, my heart is far away from God. So if you are a person who is rarely moved, rarely convicted, rarely comes down to the altar, that's not a sign of spiritual cleanliness. That's not a sign of Christ-likeness. That's a sign of hard-heartedness, the prideful heart. You see, you think you're close to God, but you couldn't be any closer. And the worst thing about it, you blind to it. God's fingerprints are all around you. He's trying to help you. He's trying to send you a message. I'm fine. I'm good. But I've hardened my heart. I think I'm all that. And I'm worried about what everybody else is doing. One of the constants, one of the most constant fingerprints of God should be the fingerprint of God on my life on what I need to change next. What's the next thing I can do? Well, what else can I do? Father, please show me. What else can I do? My desire is to grow, to be more like you. Please tell me, well, what's next? See, that, that's what the Apostle Paul said when he says, I, I, I'm the chief. He says, I die daily. He's trying to say, I'm looking for the next thing to change. I'm looking for the next fingerprint that I can work on in my life. Pharaoh, Belshazzar, Pharisee, who are you? Are you all three? How are we doing? How's the heart? Lastly, Mark chapter number seven. <coughs> Mark chapter number seven. Mark chapter number 7, verse number 32. <clears throat> and they bring, Mark 7, 32, and they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impotent in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. So they, they bring this guy to Jesus. He's deaf. He has a problem with speech. 
And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears, and he spit and touched his tongue, and looked up into heaven, and he, he sighed, saith, Epaphra, that is good, that is, be open. And straightway his ears were open, and the string of his tongue was loose, and he spake plain. In Matthew thirteen fifty-eight, I'll just read it for you. The Bible says, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The place that Jesus Christ performed this miracle with the man and putting his fingers in his ears, touching his tongue, it says, be opened. That was in a place uh, on the coast uh, of a place called um, Decapolis. It's, a, it's an area in, in uh, Bible times of Israel. That place was right next to Galilee, right next to the Sea of Galilee. That's where a lot of the ministry of Jesus Christ was spent. Many times you hear that they were on the Sea of Galilee. They went to this side and they went over there. They spent a lot of time in Galilee and the Sea of Galilee all around Israel, but there was a lot of time there. Multitudes of people were healed, injuries, sickness, illness, lifetime problems were healed by Jesus Christ. Nazareth is Jesus Christ's city. In fact, many of the Bible, when it talks about Jesus, says Jesus of Nazareth. So when the Bible in Matthew 13 doesn't say he went to Nazareth, it says he went to his own country. Well, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, so Nazareth was his own country. In fact, even while he was preaching, they were saying, isn't this, isn't this the brother of the guys who are still here? Isn't this, isn't this the, yeah, yeah, we know him. So, a lot of what Jesus Christ had done, a lot of his miracles were all around Nazareth. So there is no way on God's green earth they had not heard, and most of them had probably not even seen. Because you travel a lot, especially if you're going to the Sea of Galilee to get fish and things like that. They had a lot. So there is no excuse why when Jesus Christ came home, they just couldn't believe that he had come. And they were blind to the power of the finger of God. Sadly, I think this is where many of us fall. Not in the place of, I don't believe God can. Because we know God, God can. But this is where I think we fail. I believe God can. But I don't believe he will. I know God can. If I pray, I know God has the ability, but do you actually believe that he will? Or are you just praying because I'm just supposed to? It's the right thing to do, and I, I, I know God can. I've read the Bible. I believe the Bible. I believe everything it says. I believe all the miracles he did. I believe all the works of God. I, I know he did it, but do you believe that he will? I know God said the mountain can be moved, but when you ask for the mountain to be moved, do you really believe he's going to move it? Or are you just asking because he said to? You're just doing it because I know I'm supposed to. I'm giving the lip service to God. I fear that's where many are today. know what I'm supposed to believe, and I believe that he did, but I just, I don't believe he will, and you don't tell, you won't, you would never tell anyone that, no, that's in the hidden man of the heart, you would never say, I don't believe in God, because I, I believe in God, and that's how you, you, you satisfy yourself with this, like, I, I believe God can, and I believe he could, and I believe he might, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that we ask and it shall be given. And the Bible's very explicit. He did not many mighty works there because of one thing, unbelief. They heard about it. They probably even saw someone from a distance away. <laughs> it's not going to happen. No. 
he may have done it somewhere else. Now, maybe they thought he did it. How's it looking? You don't believe that's possible? In Exodus chapter 4, the Bible says, And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. So this is just when they, when Moses and Aaron got to Egypt. They got all the children of Israel together, and they're telling the plan. God has sent me to take us out of here. And he's letting everybody know. All the children of Israel are there. And in verse number 31, he says, And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that he looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. And it also says that he did the sights in the sign of the people. They saw the power of God. They saw the things that God had done with Moses. The sights that God had told Moses, this is what you're going to do in front of Pharaoh. This is what you do for the people. So they know I am has sent you. So before we start, oh, well, you know, they're in, bondage 400 years, they blah, 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 blah. No, they believed and they saw. First sign of adversity, Exodus chapter 5, verse 20. And they met Moses and Aaron, who stood in the way as they came forth from Pharaoh, and they said unto them, The Lord look upon you and judge, because ye have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh. What happened to the belief? What happened to, yeah, God's going to save us. First thing that Pharaoh does, bad for them, forget it. This is your fault, Moses. We wish you had never come. How does that look for you? Sounds like modern day Christianity. Oh, I'm there for the benefits, the good times. Yeah, the fun service, the, the sights of God. But the first sign of adversity, <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. Trust and obey. Ooh. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I didn't sign up for that. I, I, I know God has the ability to, but I mean, come on. I, I'm supposed to suffer? Mark eleven twenty four says, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, is the cross. Believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. See, we got the quote-unquote praying part down. But once again, do you believe that he will? The old adage, two farmers need rain. It's a drought. They both pray for rain. One farmer gets up out of his bed and go get his field ready for rain. The other one stays nice and snuggled up. Who believes God will? See, they both prayed. Both good Christian men. But one had the unbelieving heart. The other said, well, God told me to pray and believe it, and he'll send it. See, it doesn't go the other way around. I pray, God sends, then I believe. No, God says, I want to know that you trust me. Not that you trust what I can do. See, that's what many Christians falter on. I trust that God can do. God doesn't care if you trust what he can do. He wants to know, do you trust me? Because there's nothing God can't do. So there's nothing that you're going to wow God on that I trusted you for. No, God doesn't, it doesn't matter what you ask of God. God can do anything. There's nothing hard for God to do. So your request really doesn't matter. It comes down to, do I actually believe God will? Not that God can, but that God will. We don't. How is the unbelieving heart? God's fingerprint will not be seen. God's finger will not be known, even if it's right beside you, even if it's on your very life, if you do not believe what God's finger will do. So where is the finger of God? Why do we not see it anymore? Why has the fingerprint of God become just stories and legends of the past? And, and, and every once in a while, once in a great while, we hear about, oh, God did this. 
God is doing something all the time. So why aren't we seeing it all the time? Where are those that can say, as Pharaoh's magician said, this is the finger of God. Oh, and how sad it is that the children of Israel abandoned so quickly their belief and the magicians were the ones to say, Ooh, Pharaoh, that's the finger of God. How pitiful that the lost world can more easily see the finger of God than his own people that are called by his name. See, we have tied God's hands when we don't believe him. God says, I can. Because I know I can do anything. But I need to know that you trust me. So when we don't believe God, God says, I can't do it. You've tied my hands with your unbelief. So how do we combat these hard conditions? What's the answer? The hard heart of Pharaoh. The prideful heart of Belshazzar. The hypocritical heart of the Pharisees. The unbelieving heart of Nazareth. How do I fix these hard conditions? How do I fight them? Well, Mark 14, 38 says, Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. See, our problem is a spiritual problem. Spiritual blindness, spiritual understanding is clouded up. Our spiritual heart has a problem. So we need a spiritual remedy. Amen. True and holy prayer will keep my heart in tune. Amen. And will not allow my heart to slide into hardness, pridefulness, hypocrisy, and unbelief. See, a litmus test to see how much you truly believe God will do is how often and how real your prayers are. The more often, the more real my prayer life is, the more I believe in God. The good Christian prays because he's supposed to. The true Christian prays because he wants to. I want to talk to God. The more I talk to God, the better I know God, the more I trust him. I just enjoy spending time with the Father. See, if your personal prayers are your or sound like your public prayers, you do not have a prayer life. You have a box that you're checking so you can go to sleep at night. So you can say, I fulfilled my, Christ, uh, my Christian duties for the day. That's all you're doing. You're trying to make yourself comfortable so you can lay your bed ahead at night and say, oh, I forgot to pray. Now I'm going to let me not sleep. Okay? Good, good for you. That's all it's doing for you. The Christian that prays often and prays sincerely is the one who sees the finger of God and sees the fingerprints of God more often than anyone else because they're getting their spiritual eyes tuned, their spiritual heart kept the way it needs to be. See, the more I believe, the more I truly pray. The more I please God, the more I protect my heart from all the conditions, and the more I see the movings and the fingerprints of God everywhere. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Oswald Chambers said, prayer is the answer to every problem. Spurgeon said we should pray when we're in a praying mood, for it would be sinful to neglect so fair an opportunity. And we should pray when we are not in the proper mood, for it would be dangerous to remain in such an unhealthy condition. He also said, all our strength lies in prayer. All our perils are nothing, so long as we have prayer. Amen. See, these are men that understood what the crux of the Christian life was. The crux of pleasing God, the crux of understanding who God is, is your prayer life. Your prayer life is all, because that's my communication with if I have no prayer life, I have no Christian life at all. Amen. Amen. Why do I no longer see the finger of God? I don't see his fingerprints. I don't feel them. 
allowed our heart to catch some problems. Hardness, pride, hypocrisy, unbelief. Sadly, that's the modern Christian's heart. Not anywhere near the heart of Christ. The remedy? And he spake a parable unto them to this end. Men, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's what God says. Whew, I like that. It's fervent. It's got some heat to it. He really believes in me. The lost and dying. who have hearts that allow them to see the finger of God. We need Christians that know how to pray and are experts in the art of prayer. Pray true, holy, and sincere. All our problems, prayer problems. So my question, do you desire step up to the plate of prayer and move the heart of 